0: Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSAEMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us here at Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, clinical edition.
2: I'm Jeremy Heiner. And I'm
1: Sas Elisha. So for this episode, we're going to change it up a little bit. We've had a lot of students and a lot of CRNAs talk to us about doing a question and answer type of an episode. We know students have to take a lot of tests in anesthesia school. They're getting ready for the big one when they take their certification exam. And CRNAs are also prepping for the CPC examination.
2: Now, Jeremy and I write a lot of test questions, and they're, always not, they're not always winners. However, what we're going to do is, as we go through some of these questions and talk about the answers, we'll also talk about methods that you can use to analyze the questions that will possibly help you to determine the correct answer.
1: Yeah, and what we're going to be doing when we do these question and answer type episodes is we're going to pick a specific theme or topic,
2: and we're going to try to develop questions around that anesthesia concept. So take some deep breaths and pre oxygenate yourself because it's go time. It is go time.
0: We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks Including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession.
2: All right, so question number one Which measure is an accurate indicator of pre oxygenation? A. An SPO2 of 100%. B. Patient taking large tidal volume breaths. C. Fraction of exhaled or expired oxygen and D, pre-oxygenation with 10 liters of oxygen per minute. And oh man, this
1: is this is a favorite question of preceptors when they get brand new anesthesia students in the OR. How do you know you've adequately preoxygenated your patient? And the best answer here even though you'll probably be doing or or you'll at least be motivating the patient to do some of these, but the best answer is C, the fraction of exhaled or expired oxygen. When that is above 90%, your patient is adequately pre-oxygenated. Another way of saying it is adequately denitrogenated because we know that the most amount of gas a patient is breathing in, in terms of room air, the most amount of gas is nitrogen. So we need the patient to exhale as much nitrogen as they can and replace that with oxygen. That's why we put them on 100% oxygen at a high flow. Ask them to take big deep breaths. And we like to see that oxygen saturation go up and it does pretty quickly, but that those are not the best indicators of adequate preoxygenation. The best indicator is that FeO2 of greater than 90%.
2: Yeah. And that makes sense because, you know, you read in the books all the time, pre-oxygenate the patient for three to five minutes. What happens if the patient's morbidly obese? What happens if the patient has a rigid abdomen? A lot of factors where three to five minutes may not be adequate or less than three minutes may be completely perfect. And it gives you a more objective way of looking at it. Now, Jeremy, I'm going to ask you because you said this quite twice. You said C is the best answer. Can you talk about the best answer to distractors and one that's one answer that's kind of okay in terms of looking at NCE or CPCA exam questions?
1: Yeah, exactly. So as Sass mentioned, we write a lot of questions. And when writing a question, you have to make plausible distractors. So a distractor is an answer choice that could be a correct answer, but is not the best correct answer. Or sometimes we'll just make distractors that sound good, but have nothing to do with it. So when looking at a question, a lot of times we can even narrow it down to two from the four questions down to two best answers. And in those circumstances, make sure that that's not a select two, because if it's a select two, you have to choose both. But in those circumstances, go with your gut. Go with what you feel is the best when you first look at the question.
2: All right, I got two more questions here. We're going to get to question two, and they both have to do with the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. Oh, that dreaded oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. Everybody's favorite, right? Fall right asleep just hearing about that. All right, ready? The question is, which effect explains the right word shift in the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve? Haldane, Bohr, Henry's, or Dynamo?
1: Oh, yeah. Who needs anesthesia when you have these type of questions? (laughs) All right, so the best answer is B. So the correct answer, and that's not even the best answer, that's the correct answer. It's the Bohr effect. That explains a rightward shift in the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. So let's break this down. Remember, the Bohr effect describes how PaCO2 and hydrogen ions shift that curve to the right. Both a low pH, so an acidotic state, and a high PaCO2. So an acidotic state, a lot of hydrogen ions, and a high PaCO2, so hypercapnia, shift that curve to the right because an excess in hydrogen ions affects the amino acids of hemoglobin. And that essentially makes hemoglobin shift. It's what's known as an allosteric protein. So it shifts and allows oxygen to be removed or leave that hemoglobin molecule. So in those states, in a very acidotic or hypercarbic state, then hemoglobin will release oxygen very easily, causing a a rightward shift in the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve.
2: Allosteric Allosteric protein. Wow. Man, oh man. Fancy word, huh? Exactly. All right. So here, you know, just listening to the question and listening to the answers. How does oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve, Haldane-Bohr, so you know those, if you didn't have all the knowledge that Jeremy has, you would say to yourself, well, that's a a stretch saying that right there. (laughs) You would say to yourself, wow, those kind of seem accurate. Henry's doesn't really apply here and dynamo is just completely made up. So let's say you didn't know between the two, instead of guessing at four answers, now if you didn't know all that information, you can guess from two and have a higher percentage of getting that answer correct.
1: Yeah, and and a lot of people will be able probably be able to either get it right the first time when they first look at it or narrow it down to either Haldane or Bohr because because a lot of times those are taught together. The Haldane effect essentially describes how hemoglobin will act in an oxygenated environment, such as the lungs, or a non-oxygenated environment, such as the peripheral tissues, and its effect on on CO2 and the transportation and release of CO2.
0: Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim. And most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at junior at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com or call him at 504-394-6557.
2: All right, another ODC question. Which factors cause a leftward shift in the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve? And this is a select two. So A is increased production of 2,3-DPG. B is hypothermia. C is methemoglobinemia and D is acidosis.
1: All right so here again we and it's very important to read the question to see that it is a select two and because that means we're going to have to select two answers. Now the good news is is generally exams that require a select two will not allow you to progress until you've selected two. However your school exams may let you progress so make sure you read the question thoroughly and answer as many items as you need to answer the question here asking specifically about a leftward shift so the best answers here are b hypothermia and c methemoglobinemia so if we remember a leftward shift is an environment where hemoglobin has an increased affinity for oxygen. So it will hold on to oxygen tighter. And when it reaches its 50% saturation level, that PaO2 value will be lower in terms of what it should be in either a normal environment or in a rightward shift environment. What are some other things that would cause a leftward shift? Alkalosis, fetal hemoglobin. We already talked about methemoglobinemia but also carboxyhemoglobinemia, hypothermia, and then not an increase in the production of 2,3-DPG, which is produced by the red blood cell in a hypoxic environment, but a decrease in 2,3-DPG. So here's another trick that question writers will like to do in terms of distractors. If there's an opposite, then they'll either use that as a distractor. And one thing that you can do is if you see a question, and this question doesn't have it, but let's say this question had two answers. One was an increase in 2,3-DPG, and the other was a decrease in 2,3-DPG. And you didn't know which answer was correct, and, and then we had some other distractors. We'll say the hypothermia wasn't one, acidosis may be another. So if you see two opposites, likely one of those is going to be the answer. So you, that's another test-taking strategy. You see two opposites, in the answer choices and
2: one of those is going to be an answer choice. All right. Well, we have a new type of question here about hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction or HPV. So the question reads hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction is inhibited by and this is a select two. Sevoflurane, propranolol, nifedipine or fentanyl. All right, so oh, we love our HPV, hypoxic
1: pulmonary vasoconstriction. It kind of sounds like something else, HPV, something unwanted. But no, we actually do want this. This is the the, the uh, lung's ability to divert circulation to better ventilated areas of the lung. So this is asking what drugs that we could potentially give would inhibit this reaction by the lungs. And the best answers here, again, this is a select two. The answers here are A, sevoflurane. So any of our volatile anesthetics will essentially cause vasodilation within the pulmonary circulation. And the other one is nifedipine. Nifedipine, a calcium channel blocker, will also cause pulmonary vascular vasodilation, therefore inhibiting hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction.
2: Now, I know you're gonna go into the rationale right now, and that'll be fantastic. But even if you didn't know or forgot about HPV and you looked at the answers, vas- hypoxia vasoconstriction. So vasoconstriction is inhibited by a vasodilator. So what are the vasodilators? Of course, we know cevofluorine is. Propranolol is not, we know it's a beta blocker. Fentanyl is not direct. But we also know nifedipine is a direct vasodilator also. So again, sometimes just looking at the question and, you know, trying to figure out what the best answers are, sometimes you don't even really truly need to know the rationale, which is not the way we teach stuff. So Jeremy, take it with the rationale. You go. All right. So I kind of already... uh, talked about how hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction
1: is the lungs ability to divert at a precapillary site, blood flow in the pulmonary vasculature to other better perfused and mostly better ventilated areas in the lungs. So what happens if there's an area in the lungs that are experiencing some degree of atelectasis, or maybe there's some pneumonia, some consolidation, the lungs will be able to recognize that and recognize that those areas of alveoli don't have adequate oxygenation they're essentially hypoxic areas so at a precapillary site the the vasculature will vasoconstrict therefore causing the blood flow blood flow to divert to better ventilated areas of the lung and it is a very important mechanism within our lungs it's thought to be the primary mechanism Underlying effective ventilation perfusion matching. So it's something that we don't want to eliminate if we have the possibility of not eliminating it. Now, some other medications that inhibit hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, what we've already talked about are inhaled or volatile anesthetics. Other potent vasodilators such as nitroglycerin or nitroprusside. We've talked about calcium channel blockers. Inhaled nitric oxide is one. Now, we in anesthesia don't use that very often, but in the ICU, it's used. Other pulmonary vasodilators such as prostaglandins or even some phosphodiesterase inhibitors will, cause, will inhibit hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. Isoproteranol is another medication that can decrease pulmonary vascular resistance and inhibit HPV.
2: What is the infrared wavelength measured by pulse oximetry?
1: Oh, this one makes my sat decrease.
2: <laughs> All
1: right, give us the question. The answers here, Sass.
2: Oh yeah. So I should give you the answers, otherwise it's going to be difficult in a multiple choice exam. <laughs> a, it was my
1: it was my uh, humorless <laughs> joke that threw you off right there. A
2: 350 nanometers. B 650 nanometers. C, 940 nanometers, or D, 1100 nanometers?
1: So this is one of those questions where you just have to know the answer. You just have to know the fact here. Isn't it always C? Uh, Well, you know what? It's not always C. (laughs) This one happens to be C. (laughs) C is the correct answer, 940 nanometers. But I got to tell you, when writing questions, um, it was random, very random. So again, if you don't know what the answer is, You could pretty much pick anyone, Um, but again, going with what your gut feels, try to remember what your gut feels because the brain works in mysterious ways and we we can't always recall information cognitively or consciously, but unconsciously, our brains will recognize things and that's where your gut comes into play or your gestalt. That's where whatever you feel right when you see a question, go with that first instinct. So... Like I mentioned, this one's a fact-based question. It's asking for a number. And we need to know that the infrared wavelength measured by pulse oximetry is 940 nanometers. Now, the pulse ox actually measures two wavelengths. It measures infrared light and red light. And the red light is obviously what we see when we put a pulse ox on a patient's finger. The red light measures 660 nanometers. So that number you also need to know in terms of talking about pulse oximetry.
2: All right, we have another pulse oximetry question here, and I love this one. And even me with my simple mind can remember the answer. Here's the question: Which principle describes how light is absorbed by pulse oximetry? A. Boyle's. B. Beer-Lambert. C. Starling's. D fix.
1: Okay, Sass. So you said this one's easy for you to remember. So please tell me and especially our audience, why you, it's so easy for you to remember this particular question.
2: It's because it's beer. I remember beer <laughs> and Paul Salk's imagery, even though beer stands for Dr. Beer and Lambert stands for Dr. Lambert, the guys who figured this out.
1: Okay, so now I'm just imagining you with a pulse oximetry probe on your finger, tipping back t- <laughs> t- tipping back your favorite IPA. <laughs> All right, so, well, there you go. And you're, Sass, you're absolutely right. The answer here for light being absorbed by pulse oximetry is the Beer-Lambert principle. So you had mentioned the two different individuals who now have their names uh, uh, associated with this particular principle. And the first one is Dr. Beer. The Beer portion of this law describes how the amount of light absorbed is proportional to the concentration of the light absorbing substance. So essentially, what's the concentration of hemoglobin? And that's the Beer portion of this law. What is the hemoglobin concentration? The Lambert portion of the law describes how the amount of light is absorbed in proportion to the length of the path the light has to travel through. Or another way of saying that is the absorbing substance or how far away is that? So we can just think about vasodilation causing more hemoglobin molecules to be present in the absorbed light. So
2: there you go, Beer-Lambert principle. Next, num- question number seven, which respiratory muscles are involved with exhalation? A, internal intercostals, B, abdominal muscles, C, the diaphragm, or D, interscaling.
1: Okay. So this is another one you kind of just need to know. And we need to know the differences in inspiratory muscles versus expiratory muscles. And this particular question is asking about an expiratory muscle. So which, which muscles help with exhalation? And the answer here is B, uh, the abdominal muscles. The diaphragm, the interscalenes, the internal intercostals are all inspiratory muscles. And if we remember, the interscalene muscles generally come into play when the patient needs uh, more of an inspiratory effort. Now, it's also important to remember that the expiratory muscles are only used when we need to take a very quick inspiratory effort, uh, a more rapid respiratory rate. So if I'm just sitting here doing a podcast, I'm not really using my expiratory muscles. I'm not using my abdominal muscles um, or my external intercostals. Those are another expiratory muscle. But if I all of a sudden get excited and run outside because I just got a package from Amazon, then, you know, maybe my respiratory rate is going to be going up. So I will need to use my expiratory muscles and force that air out so I can take another inspiratory effort.
2: All right. Then question number eight, again, about breathing and breathing is always good. So which inspiratory muscles, inspiratory muscles, are involved with supplemental inspiratory effort during times of respiratory distress? A, external obliques. B, internal intercostals, C, diaphragm, or D, interscalene. Yeah, I kind of already let the cat out of the bag on this one, right,
1: with the last question. So we're looking for an additional inspiratory effort here. And if you're paying attention on the last question, I mentioned the interscalene muscles. These are also known as accessory muscles. There are other accessory muscles that are involved in an additional inspiratory effort, the sternocleidomastoid muscle, um, of course, the scalene muscles, the inner scalene, are part of that. We have the anterior, medial, and posterior scalene muscles. And even the pectoralis minor muscle on the chest is involved in that additional inspiratory effort. Now I have another, we don't have this here, SAS, but I thought it just came to me. Another really good question that could be asked in terms of respiratory, and, and we're talking about respiratory muscles here. If there was a question on how does the diaphragm function? What is the nerve innervation for the diaphragm? That is a very, very popular question for both boards and for anesthesia programs to ask. So Sass, what is the answer to that? Where does that nerve innervation come from? The phrenic nerve.
0: Oh, I love the phrenic nerve.
1: Yeah. And there's there's not just one phrenic nerve, is there? Bilateral phrenic nerve. Bilateral phrenics, that's right. And where do they come from? Where do they originate? C3 through C5. Keeps the diaphragm alive. I remember. I still remember learning that from anesthesia school. You're welcome. Yep, you should take credit. Uh, SAS was one of my instructors way back in the day. And
2: believe it or not, every once in a while, I listen to him. In the prehistoric days. <laughs> <laughs> Old timer alert. <laughs> All right, CRNAs. So you can earn Class B credits for listening to Beyond the Mask podcast with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. And if you've liked what you've heard, please help us to grow. Consider leaving us a five-star review and writing a review, because it really does help us improve the podcast and improve the offering that we can do to our listeners.
1: Yeah, and we appreciate everyone who's left reviews. It really does help people find the show. Okay, CRNA Nation, thanks for hanging with us. For this episode, this Q&A episode on respiratory and respiratory monitoring, remember, keep ventilating and we'll catch you on the next episode.
0: As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.